0: The Kreutzer Sonata by Leo Tolstoy Chapter 15 During the whole of my married life, I never ceased to be tormented by jealousy, but there were periods when I specially suffered from it. One of these periods was when, after the birth of our first child, the doctors forbade my wife to nurse it. I was particularly jealous at that time, in the first place, because my wife was experiencing that unrest natural to a mother, which is sure to be aroused when the natural course of life is needlessly violated. And secondly, because seeing how easily she abandoned her moral obligations as a mother, I rightly, though unconsciously, concluded that it would be equally easy for her to disregard her duty as a wife, especially as she was quite well and in spite of the precious doctor's prohibition was able to nurse her later children admirably i see you don't like doctors i said noticing a peculiarly malevolent tone in his voice whenever he alluded to them it is not a case of liking or disliking they have ruined my life as they have ruined and are ruining the lives of thousands and hundreds of thousands of human beings and i cannot help connecting the effect with the cause I understand that they want to earn money like lawyers and others, and I would willingly give them half my income, and all who realize what they are doing would willingly give them half of their possessions, if only they would not interfere with our family life, and would never come near us. I have not collected evidence, but I know dozens of cases, there are any number of them, where they have killed a child in its mother's womb, asserting that she could not give it birth though she has had children quite safely later on. Or they have killed the mother on the pretext of performing some operation. No one reckons these murders any more than they reckoned the murders of the Inquisition, because it is supposed that it is done for the good of mankind. It is impossible to number all the crimes they commit. But all those crimes are as nothing compared to the moral corruption of materialism they introduce into the world— especially through women. I don't lay stress on the fact that if one is to follow their instructions, then on account of the infection which exists everywhere and in everything, people would not progress towards greater unity, but towards separation. For according to their teaching, we ought all to sit apart, and not remove the carbolic atomizer from our mouths, though now they have discovered that even that is of no avail." But that does not matter either. The principal poison lies in the demoralization of the world, especially of women. Today, one can no longer say, you are not living rightly, live better. One can't say that, either to oneself or to anyone else. If you live a bad life, it is caused by the abnormal functioning of your nerves, etc., so you must go to them, and they will prescribe eight pennyworth of medicine from a chemist, which you must take. You get still worse. Then more medicine, and the doctor again. An excellent trick. That, however, is not the point. All I wish to say is that she nursed her babies perfectly well, and that only her pregnancy and the nursing of her babies saved me from the torments of jealousy. "'Had it not been for that, it would all have happened sooner. "'The children saved me and her. "'In eight years she had five children "'and nursed all except the first herself. "'And where are your children now?' I asked. "'The children,' he repeated in a frightened voice. "'Forgive me. "'Perhaps it is painful for you to be reminded of them.' "'No, it does not matter.' My wife's sister, and brother have taken them. They would not let me have them. I gave them my estate, but they did not give them up to me. You know I am a sort of lunatic. I have left them now, and am going away. I have seen them, but they won't let me have them, because I might bring them up so that they would not be like their parents, and they have to be just like them. Oh, well, what is to be done? Of course they won't let me have them, and won't trust me. "'Besides, I do not know whether I should be able to bring them up. "'I think not. "'I am a ruin, a cripple. "'Still, I have one thing in me. "'I know. "'Yes, that is true. "'I know what others are far from knowing. "'Yes, my children are living and growing up "'just such savages as everybody around them. "'I saw them, saw them three times.' I can do nothing for them, nothing. I am now going to my place in the south. I have a little house and a small garden there. Yes, it will be a long time before people learn what I know. How much of iron and other metal there is in the sun and the stars is easy to find out. But anything that exposes our swinishness is difficult, terribly difficult. YOU AT LEAST LISTEN TO ME, AND I AM GRATEFUL FOR THAT. CHAPTER sixteen. YOU MENTIONED MY CHILDREN. THERE AGAIN, WHAT TERRIBLE LIES ARE TOLD ABOUT CHILDREN. CHILDREN, A BLESSING FROM GOD, A JOY, THAT IS ALL A LIE. IT WAS SO ONCE UPON A TIME, BUT NOW IT IS NOT SO AT ALL. CHILDREN ARE A TORMENT, AND NOTHING ELSE. Most mothers feel this quite plainly, and sometimes inadvertently say so. Ask most mothers of our propertied classes, and they will tell you that they do not want to have children for fear of their falling ill and dying. They don't want to nurse them if they do have them, for fear of becoming too much attached to them and having to suffer. The pleasure a baby gives them by its loveliness, its little hands and feet, and its whole body, is not as great as the suffering caused by the very fear of its possibly falling ill and dying, not to speak of its actual illness or death. After weighing the advantages and disadvantages, it seems disadvantageous and therefore undesirable to have children. They say this quite frankly and boldly, imagining that these feelings of theirs arise from their love of children, a good and laudable feeling of which they are proud. They do not notice that by this reflection they plainly repudiate love, and only affirm their own selfishness. They get less pleasure from a baby's loveliness than suffering from fear on its account, and therefore the baby they would love is not wanted. They do not sacrifice themselves for a beloved being, but sacrifice a being whom they might love for their own sakes it is clear that this is not love, but selfishness. But one has not the heart to blame them, the mothers in well-to-do families, for that selfishness, when one remembers how dreadfully they suffer on account of their children's health, again thanks to the influence of those same doctors among our well-to-do classes. Even now— When I do but remember my wife's life, and the condition she was in during the first years when we had three or four children, and she was absorbed in them, I am seized with horror. We led no life at all, but were in a state of constant danger, of escape from it, recurring danger, again followed by a desperate struggle, and another escape, always as if we were on a sinking ship. Sometimes it seemed to me that this was done on purpose— and that she pretended to be anxious about the children in order to subdue me. It solved all questions in her favor, with such tempting simplicity. It sometimes seemed as if all she did and said on these occasions was pretense. But no, she herself suffered terribly, and continually tormented herself about the children and their health and illnesses. It was torture for her, and for me too and it was impossible for her not to suffer. After all, the attachment to her children, the animal need of feeding, caressing, and protecting them, was there as with most women, but there was not the lack of imagination and reason that there is in animals. A hen is not afraid of what may happen to her chick, does not know all the diseases that may befall it, and does not know all those remedies with which people imagine that they can save from illness and death. And for a hen, her young are not a source of torment. She does for them what it is natural and pleasurable for her to do. Her young ones are a pleasure to her. When a chick falls ill, her duties are quite definite. She warms and feeds it. And doing this, she knows that she is doing all that is necessary." If her chick dies, she does not ask herself why it died, or where it has gone to. She cackles for a while, and then leaves off and goes on living as before. But for our unfortunate women, my wife among them, it was not so. Not to mention illnesses, and how to cure them. She was always hearing and reading from all sides endless rules for the rearing and educating of children— which were continually being superseded by others. This is the way to feed a child. Feed it in this way, on such a thing. No, not on such a thing, but in this way. Clothes, drinks, baths, putting to bed, walking, fresh air. For all these things, we, especially she, heard of new rules every week. Just as if children had only begun to be born into the world since yesterday. And if a child that had not been fed or bathed in the right way, or at the right time, fell ill, it appeared that we were to blame, for not having done what we ought. That was so, while they were well. It was a torment even then. But if one of them happened to fall ill, it was all up. A regular hell. It is supposed that illness can be cured, and that there is a science about it, and people, doctors, who know about it. Ah! but not all of them know, only the very best. When a child is ill, one must get hold of the very best one, the one who saves, and then the child is saved. But if you don't get that doctor, or if you don't live in the place where that doctor lives, the child is lost. This was not a creed peculiar to her. It is the creed of all women of our class, and she heard nothing else from all sides." Catherine Semyonova lost two children because Ivan Zakharich was not called in in time. But Ivanza Karich saved Mary Ivanovna's eldest girl, and the Petrovs moved in time to various hotels by the doctor's advice, and the children remained alive. But if they had not been segregated, the children would have died. Another, who had a delicate child, moved south by the doctor's advice and saved the child. How can she help being tortured and agitated all the time, when the lives of the children for whom she has an animal attachment depend on her finding out in time what Ivan Zakarich will say? But what Ivan Zakarich will say nobody knows, and he himself least of all, for he is well aware that he knows nothing, and therefore cannot be of any use, but just shuffles about at random, so that people should not cease to believe that he knows something or other. You see— Had she been wholly an animal, she would not have suffered so. And if she had been quite a human being, she would have had faith in God, and would have said and thought, as a believer does, The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. One can't escape from God. Our whole life with the children, for my wife, and consequently for me, was not a joy, but a torment. How could she help torturing herself? she tortured herself incessantly. Sometimes, when we had just made peace after some scene of jealousy, or simply after a quarrel, and thought we should be able to live, to read, and to think a little, we had no sooner settled down to some occupation than the news came that Vasya was being sick, or Masha showed symptoms of dysentery, or Andrusha had a rash, and there was an end to peace. It was not life any more." Where was one to drive to? For what doctor? How isolate the child? And then it's a case of enemas, temperatures, medicines, and doctors. Hardly is that over before something else begins. We had no regular, settled family life, but only, as I have already said, continual escapes from imaginary and real dangers. It is like that in most families nowadays, you know, but in my family it was especially acute. My wife was a child-loving and credulous woman. So, the presence of children not only failed to improve our life, but poisoned it. Besides, the children were a new cause of dissension. As soon as we had children, they became the means and the object of our discord, and more often the older they grew. They were not only the object of discord, but the weapons of our strife. We used our children, as it were, to fight one another with. Each of us had a favorite weapon among them for our strife. I used to fight her chiefly through Vasya, the eldest boy, and she, me, through Lisa. Besides that, as they grew older and their characters became defined, it came about that they grew into allies whom each of us tried to draw to his or her side. They, poor things, suffered terribly from this. But we, with our incessant warfare had no time to think of that the girl was my ally and the eldest boy who resembled his mother and was her favorite was often hateful to me chapter 17 well and so we lived our relations to one another grew more and more hostile and at last reached a stage where it was not disagreement that caused hostility but hostility that caused disagreement Whatever she might say, I disagreed with beforehand, and it was just the same with her. In the fourth year, we both, it seemed, came to the conclusion that we could not understand one another. We no longer tried to bring any dispute to a conclusion. We invariably kept to our own opinions even about the most trivial questions, but especially about the children." as I now recall them, the views I maintained were not all so dear to me that I could not have given them up. But she was of the opposite opinion, and to yield meant yielding to her, and that I could not do. It was the same with her. She probably considered herself quite in the right towards me, and as for me, I always thought myself a saint towards her. When we were alone together, we were doomed almost to silence— or to conversations such as I am convinced animals can carry on with one another. What is the time? Time to go to bed. What is today's dinner? Where shall we go? What is there in the papers? Send for the doctor. Masha has a sore throat." We only needed to go a hair beyond this impossibly limited circle of conversation for irritation to flare up. We had collisions and acrimonious words about the coffee, a tablecloth, a trap a lead at bridge, all of them things that could not be of any importance to either of us. In me, at any rate, there often raged a terrible hatred of her. Sometimes I watched her pouring out tea, swinging her leg, lifting a spoon to her mouth, smacking her lips and drawing in some liquid, and I hated her for these things, as though they were the worst possible actions." I did not then notice that the periods of anger corresponded quite regularly and exactly to the periods of what we called love—a period of love, then a period of animosity, an energetic period of love, then a long period of animosity, a weaker manifestation of love, and a shorter period of animosity. We did not then understand that this love and animosity were one and the same animal feeling only at opposite poles. To live like that would have been awful had we understood our position, but we neither understood nor saw it. Both salvation and punishment for man lie in the fact that if he lives wrongly, he can befog himself so as not to see the misery of his position. And this we did. She tried to forget herself in intense and always hurried occupation with household affairs, busying herself with the arrangements of the house, her own and the children's clothes, their lessons and their health, while I had my own occupations—wine, my office duties, shooting, and cards. We were both continually occupied, and we both felt that the busier we were, the nastier we might be to each other. It's all very well for you to grimace, I thought, but you have harassed me all night with your scenes, and I have a meeting on— It's all very well for you, she not only thought, but said, but I have been awake all night with the baby. Those new theories of hypnotism, psychic diseases, and hysterics are not a simple folly, but a dangerous and repulsive one. Charcot would certainly have said that my wife was hysterical, and that I was abnormal, and he would no doubt have tried to cure me. But there was nothing to cure." Thus we lived in a perpetual fog, not seeing the condition we were in, and if what did happen had not happened, I should have gone on living so to old age, and should have thought, when dying, that I had led a good life. I should not have realized the abyss of misery and the horrible falsehood in which I wallowed. We were like two convicts, hating each other and chained together "'poisoning one another's lives and trying not to see it. "'I did not then know that ninety-nine percent of married people "'live in a similar hell to the one I was in, "'and that it cannot be otherwise. "'I did not then know this either about others or about myself. "'It is strange what coincidences there are in regular or even in irregular lives. "'Just when the parents find life together unendurable,' It becomes necessary to move to town for the children's education. He stopped, and once or twice gave vent to his strange sounds, which were now quite like suppressed sobs. We were approaching a station. What is the time? He asked. I looked at my watch. It was two o'clock. You are not tired? He asked. No, but you are? I am suffocating. Excuse me. I will walk up and down and drink some water. He went unsteadily through the carriage. I remained alone, thinking over what he had said, and I was so engrossed in thought that I did not notice when he re-entered by the door at the other end of the carriage. Chapter 18 Yes, I keep diverging, he began. I have thought much over it. I now see many things differently, and I want to express it. Well, So we lived in town. In town, a man can live for a hundred years without noticing that he has long been dead and has rotted away. He has no time to take account of himself. He is always occupied. Business affairs, social intercourse, health, art, the children's health, and their education. Now one has to receive so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so go to see so-and-so, and and -and so-and-so. Now one has to go and look at this, and hear this man or that woman. In town, you know, there are at any given moment one or two or even three celebrities whom one must on no account miss seeing. Then one has to undergo a treatment oneself, or get someone else attended to. Then there are teachers, tutors, and governesses. But one's own life is quite empty. Well, so we lived and felt less the painfulness of living together. Besides, at first we had splendid occupations, arranging things in a new place, in new quarters, and we were also occupied in going from the town to the country, and back to town again. We lived so through one winter, and the next there occurred, unnoticed by anyone, an apparently unimportant thing, but the cause of all that happened later. She was not well, and the doctors told her not to have children, and taught her how to avoid it. To me it was disgusting. I struggled against it, but she, with frivolous obstinacy, insisted on having her own way, and I submitted. The last excuse for our swinish life, children, was then taken away, and life became viler than ever. To a peasant, a laboring man, Children are necessary. Though it is hard for him to feed them, still he needs them, and therefore his marital relations have a justification. But to us who have children, more children are unnecessary. They are an additional care and expense, a further division of property, and a burden. So our swinish life has no justification. We either artificially deprive ourselves of children, or regard them as a misfortune the consequences of carelessness, and that is still worse. We have no justification, but we have fallen morally so low that we do not even feel the need of any justification. The majority of the present educated world devote themselves to this kind of debauchery without the least qualm of conscience. There is indeed nothing that can feel qualms, for conscience in our society is non-existent, unless one can call public opinion and the criminal law a conscience. In this case, neither the one nor the other is infringed. There is no reason to be ashamed of public opinion, for everybody acts in the same way. Mari Pavlovna, Ivan Zakharich, and the rest. Why breed paupers or deprive oneself of the possibility of social life? There is no need to fear or be ashamed in face of the criminal law, either. Those shameless hussies or soldiers' wives throw their babies into ponds or wells, and they, of course, must be put into prison. But we do it all at the proper time and in a clean way. We lived like that for another two years. The means employed by those scoundrel doctors evidently began to bear fruit. She became physically stouter and handsomer, like the late beauty of summer's end. She felt this, and paid attention to her appearance. She developed a provocative kind of beauty, which made people restless. She was in the full vigor of a well-fed and excited woman of thirty who was not bearing children. Her appearance disturbed people. When she passed men, she attracted their notice. She was like a fresh, well-fed, harnessed horse whose bridle has been removed. There was no bridle as is the case with ninety-nine hundredths of our women. And I felt this, and was frightened. Chapter 19 He suddenly rose and sat down close to the window. Pardon me, he muttered, and with his eyes fixed on the window, he remained silent for about three minutes. Then he sighed deeply and moved back to the seat opposite mine. His face was quite changed, his eyes looked pathetic, and his lips puckered strangely, almost as if he were smiling. I am rather tired, but I will go on with it. We have still plenty of time. It is not dawn yet. Ah, yes, he began after lighting a cigarette. She grew plumper after she stopped having babies, and her malady, that everlasting worry about the children began to pass. At least, not actually to pass, but she, as it were, woke up from an intoxication, came to herself, and saw that there was a whole divine world with its joys which she had forgotten, but a divine world she did not know how to live in, and did not at all understand. I must not miss it. Time is passing and won't come back. So I imagine she thought, or rather felt, nor could she have thought or felt differently. She had been brought up in the belief that there was only one thing in the world worthy of attention—love. She had married and received something of that love, but not nearly what had been promised and was expected. Even that had been accompanied by many disappointments and sufferings, and then this unexpected torment—so many children. The torments exhausted her— And then, thanks to the obliging doctors, she learnt that it is possible to avoid having children. She was very glad, tried it, and became alive again for the one thing she knew—for love. But love with a husband, befouled by jealousy and all kinds of anger, was no longer the thing she wanted. She had visions of some other, clean, new love. At least I thought she had. "'and she began to look about her as if expecting something. "'I saw this and could not help feeling anxious. "'It happened again and again that while talking to me, "'as usual, through other people, "'that is, telling a third person what she meant for me, "'she boldly, without remembering that she had expressed "'the opposite opinion an hour before, "'declared, though half-jokingly, "'that a mother's cares are a fraud.' and that it is not worthwhile to devote one's life to children when one is young and can enjoy life. She gave less attention to the children, and less frenziedly than before, but gave more and more attention to herself, to her appearance, though she tried to conceal this, and to her pleasures, even to her accomplishments. She again enthusiastically took to the piano, which she had quite abandoned, and it all began from that. He turned his weary eyes to the window again, but evidently making an effort, immediately continued once more. Yes, that man made his appearance. He became confused and once or twice made that peculiar sound with his nose. I could see that it was painful for him to name that man, to recall him, or speak about him. But he made an effort, and, as if he had broken the obstacle that hindered him, continued resolutely. "'He was a worthless man, in my opinion, and according to my estimate. And not because of the significance he acquired in my life, but because he really was so. However, the fact that he was a poor sort of fellow only served to show how irresponsible she was. If it had not been he, then it would have been another. It had to be.' Again, he paused. "'Yes,' He was a musician, a violinist, not a professional, but a semi professional, semi society man. His father, a landowner, was a neighbor of my father's. He had been ruined, and his children there were three boys had obtained settled positions. Only this one, the youngest, had been handed over to his godmother in Paris. There he was sent to the Conservatoire because he had a talent for music and he came out as a violinist and played at concerts. He was a man, having evidently intended to say something bad about him. Pozneshev restrained himself and rapidly said, Well, I don't really know how he lived. I only know that he returned to Russia that year and appeared in my house. With moist and almond-shaped eyes, red smiling lips, a small waxed mustache, hair done in the latest fashion, and an insipidly pretty face, he was what women call not-bad-looking. His figure was weak, though not misshapen, and he had a specially developed posterior, like a woman's, or such as hottentots are said to have. They, too, are reported to be musical. Pushing himself as far as possible into familiarity, but sensitive, and always ready to yield at the slightest resistance, He maintained his dignity in externals, wore buttoned boots of a special Parisian fashion, bright-colored ties, and other things foreigners acquire in Paris, which by their noticeable novelty always attract women. There was an effective external gaiety in his manner. That manner, you know, of speaking about everything in allusions and unfinished sentences, as if you knew it all, remembered it, and could complete it yourself." it was he with his music who was the cause of it all. You know at the trial the case was put as if it was all caused by jealousy. No such thing. That is, I don't mean no such thing. It was, and yet it was not. At the trial it was decided that I was a wronged husband and that I had killed her while defending my outraged honor. That is the phrase they employ, you know. That is why I was acquitted, I tried to explain matters at the trial, but they took it that I was trying to rehabilitate my wife's honor. What my wife's relations with that musician may have been has no meaning for me, or for her either. What has a meaning is what I have told you about—my swinishness. The whole thing was an outcome of the terrible abyss between us of which I have told you—that dreadful tension of mutual hatred which made the first excuse sufficient to produce a crisis. The quarrels between us had for some time past become frightful, and were all the more startling because they alternated with similarly intense animal passion. If he had not appeared, there would have been someone else. If the occasion had not been jealousy, it would have been something else. I maintained that all husbands who live as I did must either live dissolutely separate, or kill themselves or their wives, as I have done. If there is anybody who has not done so, he is a rare exception. Before I ended as I did, I had several times been on the verge of suicide, and she, too, had repeatedly tried to poison herself. Chapter 20. Well, that is how things were going not long before it happened. We seem to be living in a state of truce, and had no reason to infringe it. Then we chanced to speak about a dog, which I said had been awarded a medal at an exhibition. She remarked, not a medal, but an honorable mention. A dispute ensues. We jump from one subject to another, reproach one another. Oh, that's nothing new. It's always been like that. You said, no, I didn't say so. Then I am telling lies, You feel that at any moment that dreadful quarreling which makes you wish to kill yourself or her will begin. You know it will begin immediately, and fear it like fire, and therefore wish to restrain yourself. But your whole being is seized with fury. She, being in the same or even a worse condition, purposely misinterprets every word you say, giving it a wrong meaning. Her every word is venomous. Where she alone knows that I am most sensitive, she stabs. It gets worse and worse. I shout, "'Be quiet!' or something of that kind. She rushes out of the room and into the nursery. I try to hold her back in order to finish what I was saying, to prove my point, and I seize her by the arm. She pretends that I have hurt her and screams, "'Children, your father is striking me!' I shout, "'Don't lie!' But it's not the first time, she screams, or something like that. The children rush to her. She calms them down. I say, don't sham. She says, everything is sham in your eyes. You would kill anyone and say they were shamming. Now I have understood you. That's just what you want. Oh, I wish you were dead as a dog, I shout. I remember how those dreadful words horrified me. I never thought I could utter such dreadful, coarse words, and am surprised that they escaped me. I shout them and rush away into my study, and sit down and smoke. I hear her go out into the hall, preparing to go away. I ask, where are you going to? She does not reply. Well, devil take her, I say to myself, and go back to my study, and lie down and smoke a thousand different plans of how to revenge myself on her and get rid of her, and how to improve matters and go on as if nothing had happened, come into my head. I think all that and go on smoking and smoking. I think of running away from her, hiding myself, going to America. I get as far as dreaming of how I shall get rid of her, how splendid that will be, and how I shall unite with another, an admirable woman, quite different. I shall get rid of her either by her dying or by a divorce, and I plan how it is to be done. I notice that I am getting confused and not thinking of what is necessary, and to prevent myself from perceiving that my thoughts are not to the point, I go on smoking. Life in the house goes on. The governess comes in and asks, Where is Madam? When will she be back? The footman asks whether he is to serve tea. I go to the dining room the children especially Lisa who already understands gaze inquiringly and disapprovingly at me we drink tea in silence she has still not come back the evening passes she has not returned and two different feelings alternate within me anger because she torments me and all the children by her absence which will end by her returning and fear "'that she will not return, but will do something to herself. "'I would go to fetch her, but where am I to look for her? "'At her sister's? "'But it would be so stupid to go and ask. "'And it's all the better. "'If she is bent on tormenting someone, let her torment herself. "'Besides, that is what she is waiting for, "'and next time it would be worse still. "'But suppose she is not with her sister, "'but is doing something to herself.' or has already done it. It's past ten. Past eleven. I don't go to the bedroom. It would be stupid to lie there alone waiting. But I'll not lie down here either. I wish to occupy my mind, to write a letter, or to read, but I can't do anything. I sit alone in my study, tortured, angry, and listening. It's three o'clock, four o'clock, and she is not back. Towards morning, I fall asleep. I wake up. She has still not come. Everything in the house goes on in the usual way, but all are perplexed and look at me inquiringly and reproachfully, considering me to be the cause of it all. And in me, the same struggle still continues, anger that she is torturing me and anxiety for her. At about eleven in the morning, her sister arrives as her envoy, and the usual talk begins. She is in a terrible state. What does it all mean? After all, nothing has happened. I speak of her impossible character and say that I have not done anything. But you know it can't go on like this, says her sister. It's all her doing and not mine, I say. I won't take the first step. If it means separation, let it be separation my sister-in-law goes away, having achieved nothing. I had boldly said that I would not take the first step, but after her departure, when I came out of my study and saw the children piteous and frightened, I was prepared to take the first step. I should be glad to do it, but I don't know how. Again, I pace up and down and smoke. At lunch, I drink vodka and wine and attain what I unconsciously desire— I no longer see the stupidity and humiliation of my position. At about three, she comes. When she meets me, she does not speak. I imagine that she is submitted, and begin to say that I had been provoked by her reproaches. She with the same stern expression on her terribly harassed face says that she has not come for explanations, but to fetch the children, because we cannot live together. I begin telling her that the fault is not mine and that she provoked me beyond endurance. She looks severely and solemnly at me and says, Do not say any more. You will repent it. I tell her that I cannot stand comedies. Then she cries out something I don't catch and rushes into her room. The key clicks behind her. She has locked herself in. I try the door, but getting no answer, go away angrily. Half an hour later, Lisa runs in crying. What is it? Has anything happened? We can't hear Mama. We go. I pull at the double doors with all my might. The bolt had not been firmly secured, and the two halves both open. I approach the bed, on which she is lying awkwardly, in her petticoats and with a pair of high boots on. An empty opium bottle is on the table she is brought to herself. Tears follow, and a reconciliation. No, not a reconciliation. In the heart of each there is still the old animosity, with the additional irritation produced by the pain of this quarrel, which each attributes to the other. But one must of course finish it all somehow, and life goes on in the old way. And so the same kind of quarrel, or even worse ones, occurred continually, once a week, once a month, or at times every day. It was always the same. Once I had already procured a passport to go abroad. The quarrel had continued for two days. But there was again a partial explanation, partial reconciliation, and I did not go. Chapter 21 so those were our relations when that man appeared. He arrived in Moscow. His name is Trukachovsky and came to my house. It was in the morning I received him. We had once been on familiar terms and he tried to maintain a familiar tone by using non-committal expressions but I definitely adopted a conventional tone and he at once submitted to it. I disliked him from the first glance. But curiously enough, a strange and fatal force led me not to repulse him, not to keep him away, but on the contrary, to invite him to the house. After all, what could have been simpler than to converse with him coldly, and say good-bye without introducing him to my wife? But no, as if purposely, I began talking about his playing, and said I had been told he had given up the violin— He replied that, on the contrary, he now played more than ever. He referred to the fact that there had been a time when I myself played. I said I had given it up, but that my wife played well. It is an astonishing thing that from the first day, from the first hour of my meeting him, my relations with him were such as they might have been only after all that subsequently happened. There was something strained in them. I noticed every word, every expression he or I used, and attributed importance to them. I introduced him to my wife. The conversation immediately turned to music, and he offered to be of use to her by playing with her. My wife was, as usual of late, very elegant, attractive, and disquietingly beautiful. He evidently pleased her at first sight. Besides, she was glad that she would have someone to accompany her on a violin, which she was so fond of that she used to engage a violinist from the theater for the purpose, and her face reflected her pleasure. But catching sight of me, she at once understood my feeling, and changed her expression, and a game of mutual deception began. I smiled pleasantly, to appear as if I liked it. He, looking at my wife as all immoral men look at pretty women, pretended that he was only interested in the subject of the conversation, which no longer interested him at all. While she tried to seem indifferent, though my false smile of jealousy, with which she was familiar, and his lustful gaze evidently excited her. I saw that from their first encounter her eyes were particularly bright, and, probably as a result of my jealousy, It seemed as if an electric current had been established between them, evoking, as it were, an identity of expressions, looks, and smiles. She blushed, and he blushed. She smiled, and he smiled. We spoke about music, Paris, and all sorts of trifles. Then he rose to go, and stood smilingly, holding his hat against his twitching thigh, and looking now at her and now at me, as if in expectation of what we would do. I remember that instant, just because at that moment I might not have invited him, and then nothing would have happened. But I glanced at him and at her, and said silently to myself, Don't suppose that I am jealous, or that I am afraid of you, I added, mentally addressing him, and I invited him to come some evening and bring his violin to play with my wife. She glanced at me with surprise, flushed, and as if frightened, began to decline, saying that she did not play well enough. This refusal irritated me still more, and I insisted the more on his coming. I remember the curious feeling with which I looked at the back of his head, with the black hair parted in the middle, contrasting with the white nape of his neck, as he went out with his peculiar springing gait, suggestive of some kind of a bird. I could not conceal from myself that that man's presence tormented me. It depends on me, I reflected, to act so as to see nothing more of him. But that would be to admit that I am afraid of him. No, I am not afraid of him, "'It would be too humiliating,' I said to myself. "'And there, in the ante-room, knowing that my wife heard me, "'I insisted that he should come that evening with his violin. "'He promised to do so, and left. "'In the evening, he brought his violin, and they played. "'But it took a long time to arrange matters. "'They had not the music they wanted, "'and my wife could not without preparation play what they had.' I was very fond of music, and sympathized with their playing, arranging a music stand for him, and turning over the pages. They played a few things, some songs without words, and a little sonata by Mozart. They played splendidly, and he had an exceptionally fine tone. Besides that, he had a refined and elevated taste not at all in correspondence with his character. He was of course a much better player than my wife, and he helped her, while at the same time politely praising her playing. He behaved himself very well. My wife seemed interested only in music, and was very simple and natural. But though I pretended to be interested in the music, I was tormented by jealousy all the evening. From the first moment his eyes met my wife's, I saw that the animal in each of them, "'regardless of all conditions of their position and of society, "'asked, "'May I?' "'And answered, "'Oh, yes, certainly. "'I saw that he had not at all expected to find my wife, "'a Moscow lady, so attractive, "'and that he was very pleased, "'for he had no doubt whatever that she was willing. "'The only crux was whether that unendurable husband "'could hinder them. "'Had I been pure?' I should not have understood this, but, like the majority of men, I had myself regarded women in that way before I married, and therefore could read his mind like a manuscript. I was particularly tormented because I saw without doubt that she had no other feeling towards me than a continual irritation, only occasionally interrupted by the habitual sensuality, but that this man, by his external refinement and novelty, and still more by his undoubtedly great talent for music, by the nearness that comes of playing together, and by the influence music, especially the violin, exercises unimpressionable natures, was sure not only to please, but certainly, and without the least hesitation, to conquer, crush, bind her, twist her round his little finger, and do whatever he liked with her. I could not help seeing this and I suffered terribly. But for all that, or perhaps on account of it, some force obliged me against my will to be not merely polite, but amiable to him. Whether I did it for my wife, or for him, to show that I was not afraid of him, or whether I did it to deceive myself, I don't know, but I know that from the first I could not behave naturally with him. In order not to yield to my wish to kill him there and then, I had to make much of him. I gave him expensive wines at supper, went into raptures over his playing, spoke to him with a particularly amiable smile, and invited him to dine and play with my wife again the next Sunday. I told him I would ask a few friends who were fond of music to hear him, and so it ended. Greatly agitated— Kozneshev changed his position and emitted his peculiar sound. "'It is strange how the presence of that man acted on me,' he began again, with an evident effort to keep calm. "'I come home from the exhibition a day or two later, enter the anteroom, and suddenly feel something heavy, as if a stone had fallen on my heart, and I cannot understand what it is.' It was that, passing through the anteroom, I noticed something which reminded me of him. I realized what it was only in my study, and went back to the ante-room to make sure. Yes, I was not mistaken. There was his overcoat. A fashionable coat, you know. Though I did not realize it, I observed everything connected with him with extraordinary attention. I inquire. Sure enough, he is there. I pass on to the dancing room, not through the drawing room, but through the schoolroom. My daughter, Lisa, sits reading a book, and the nurse sits with the youngest boy at the table, making a lid of some kind spin around. The door to the dancing room is shut, but I hear the sound of a rhythmic arpeggio and his and her voices. I listen, but cannot make out anything. Evidently, the sound of the piano was purposely made to drown the sound of their voices. Their kisses, perhaps. My God, what was aroused in me! Even to think of the beast that then lived in me fills me with horror. My heart suddenly contracted, stopped, and then began to beat like a hammer. My chief feeling, as usual whenever I was enraged, was one of self-pity— in the presence of the children, of their nurse, thought I. Probably I looked awful, for Lisa gazed at me with strange eyes. What am I to do? I asked myself. Go in? I can't. Heaven only knows what I should do, but neither can I go away. The nurse looked at me as if she understood my position. But it is impossible not to go in, I said to myself and I quickly opened the door. He was sitting at the piano, playing those arpeggios with his large, white, upturned fingers. She was standing in the curve of the piano, bending over some open music. She was the first to see or hear, and glanced at me. Whether she was frightened and pretended not to be, or whether she was really not frightened, anyway, she did not start or move, but only blushed and that not at once. How glad I am that you have come. We have not decided what to play on Sunday, she said in a tone she would not have used to me had we been alone. This, and her using the word we, of herself and him, filled me with indignation. I greeted him silently. He pressed my hand, and at once, with a smile which I thought distinctly ironic, began to explain that he had brought some music to practice for Sunday, but that they disagreed about what to play. A classical but more difficult piece, namely Beethoven's Sonata for the Violin, or a few little pieces. It was all so simple and natural that there was nothing one could cavil at, yet I felt certain that it was all untrue, and that they had agreed how to deceive me. One of the most distressing conditions of life for a jealous man, and everyone is jealous in our world, are certain society conventions which allow a man and woman the greatest and most dangerous proximity. You would become a laughingstock to others if you tried to prevent such nearness at balls, or the nearness of doctors to their women patients, or of people occupied with art, sculpture, and especially music. A couple are occupied with the noblest of arts, music. This demands a certain nearness, and there is nothing reprehensible in that, and only a stupid, jealous husband can see anything undesirable in it. Yet everybody knows that it is by means of those very pursuits, especially of music, that the greater part of the adulteries in our society occur. I evidently confuse them by the confusion I betrayed. For a long time I could not speak. I was like a bottle held upside down from which the water does not flow because it is too full. I wanted to abuse him and to turn him out, but again felt that I must treat him courteously and amiably, and I did so. I acted as though I approved of it all, and again, because of the strange feeling which made me behave to him, the more amiably the more his presence distressed me, I told him that I trusted his taste, and advised her to do the same. He stayed as long as was necessary to efface the unpleasant impression caused by my sudden entrance, looking frightened and remaining silent, and then left, pretending that it was now decided what to play next day. I was, however, fully convinced that compared to what interested them the question of what to play was quite indifferent." I saw him out to the anteroom with special politeness. How could one do less than accompany a man who had come to disturb the peace and destroy the happiness of a whole family? And I pressed his soft white hand with particular warmth.